so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech Newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Samuel Moyne of Yale University to discuss the nature of human rights and history from his works, Christian Human Rights, as well as The Last Utopia, Human Rights and History. Today, we talk about the rise and the centrality of human rights in modern discourse. Samuel Moyne is the Chancellor Kent Professor of Law and History at Yale University. He received a doctorate in modern European history from the University of California, Berkeley in 2000, as well as a law degree from Harvard University in 2001. He came to Yale from Harvard University, where he was the Jeremiah Smith Jr. Professor of Law and Professor of History. His areas of interest in legal scholarship included international law, human rights, the law of war, and legal thought. He has written several books from the fields of European intellectual history as well as human rights history, including Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. I've really been looking forward to this conversation, as I was telling you right before we jumped on, uh, because I've one of the areas of research and kind of interest for me is thinking about kind of human rights, especially as it intersects with Christianity and thinking through kind of theological anthropology. It's been a kind of a interesting journey over the last few years as I've kind of delved into these ideas and I've been exposed to your works a number of times and really enjoyed and kind of been challenged by the way you frame up these concepts. But before we dive into the concept and conversation today, I'd love for listeners to get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit of your background and what kind of sparked your interest in studying human rights? Well, I'm I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and I, I trained mainly as a historian of modern Europe, and that was at Berkeley. And uh, I went to law school, and since then I've taught history and law at, at a few universities, now teaching at Yale. And about 10 years ago, I, I began to write about human rights and international law, mainly because these were very kind of high ideals in my youth in the 1990s. And I began to have second thoughts about, you know, just how high the ideals in human rights are. And so I began to look into their history. Yeah, that's one of the things that is kind of 
I think for many, the idea of our concept of human rights is almost assumed today. It's part of our kind of our popular discourse. Um, we talk about everything is a right. Everything is a human right today. And similar to kind of your stories, I started to dive into this. I started to say, well, what do we mean by this? And kind of what's its philosophical underpinning and foundation? And as we jump into the conversation, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, and I do this with all of our scholars and uh, thinkers that we host, is let's define our terms a little bit. Because I think when we say something like human rights, you may mean one thing, I may mean another, a listener may mean something else. And then to throw in a lot of uh, kind of extra baggage in that, we often talk about terms like dignity or natural right or legal rights. I wanted to give you kind of the floor to say, how do you understand the term human right specifically as you use it in your own work? And how does that kind of encompass a much larger debate um, about, in, in many ways, what does it mean to be human today? So I agree with you totally that it's important to define our terms. Um, and I do think there's pretty wide agreement that human rights refers to an idea. You know, we'd have to justify that idea, but the idea is that in virtue of being human and nothing else, people have certain entitlements from other people, in particular their communities and states, maybe every everyone around the whole world. I have tried to look at how people have done very different things politically with that idea. They've put different content in it. They've had revolutions like founding the United States on the basis of it. They've set up international organizations and crafted international laws. And, and above all, they've kind of founded movements that are very prominent in international politics today to um, advance human rights beyond borders. So I've mainly looked into the history of th those last things. But of course, it all does go back to this idea and there's no doubt that in kind of those basic terms in which I defined it, it's old. Now, interestingly, I mean, we may, might want to get into this. The idea of human dignity, I don't think was very deeply directly connected to the idea of human rights for a long time. And so that idea is also very old. It has something to do with the notion that human beings are of high standing have a kind of high rank, you know, begging the question relative to what. But in history, I think we'd have to get into what is the relation of these two ideas to one another. Human dignity would often seem, be seen to be the ground of human rights, like the reason why humans have these entitlements in virtue of their humanity. It's because they're dignified and therefore get these Rights, But that's a hard argument to make. And what's kind of interesting is that people don't make it. Thomas Jefferson didn't make it. The people in the French Revolution didn't make it, even though they had big revolutions based on the idea of natural or human rights. Yeah. I think especially in my own kind of theological and ethical tradition in Christianity, Protestant Christianity specifically, uh, we do often connect those terms. And I think often when we talk about the idea of human dignity, we're often talking about in my tradition is uh, an image bearer, one who's created in the very image of God, that there's an inherent worth and dignity because of that, that status that has been given to us by God, our creator. Um, but then we also see kind of the, how that connects to rights and even kind of what we talked about earlier in terms of legal rights. I think one of the things you rightfully note in The Last Utopia is that our conception of rights, especially today, 
is often tied to the idea of a state. Uh, we talk about the idea of a, a local state or kind of some type of international kind of governance. We often frame it in terms of we have a right to this that may be a pre-political right, it may be a legal right or constitutional right, not invoked specifically to transcend the state. It's kind of in, in relation to the state. So I wanted to see if you could unpack that a little bit, especially of how that's kind of played out over human history, even recent history, and how that shapes kind of contemporary public discourse on the nature of rights, especially as we start to think as a more kind of globalized international society where there isn't, I mean, there are like international courts of human rights and things like that, but a body that can enforce those type of legal rights as much. Um, I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack that notion about how we often talk about it in, in light of the authority of a state, not invoke to in some ways transcend it. Sure. I'll just begin by mentioning in passing that Genesis one twenty six seven which is the kind of source text you referred to, has been interpreted in kind of radically different ways over the millennia by Jews and later Christians of various kinds. But, you know, my story is about actors who are definitely Christian, but they often kind of try to frame their claims about rights in secular terms and and think about, you know, as Thomas Jefferson did, you know, nature as the source of moral authority. Remember in the Declaration of Independence, 1776, he hedges by saying nature's God. But it's as if the God part is less important because the rights are in nature visible to all comers. But what I try to argue in the last utopia is that, you know, even from that relatively recent date, 1776 to now, there was a big shift in the meaning of human rights in practice because Jefferson and others were revolutionaries. They set out to construct a new state, a new space for their own citizenships, help themselves. They turned to violence. And human rights were seen as authority for a national founding. And that remained true for a good long time, all the way up through the decolonization of the world, when what you did if you were suffering was you engaged in self-help and state founding, especially to make sure that your state protected people like you, similarly situated, like a nation in an empire might want to get free. That's what happened in decolonization. But then something happened, I think, in pretty recent history in the last 50 years. You could think of it as an update where people strove to root human rights above states and nations and say, states and nations fail and they need protection. We need protection from those very uh, states and nations that we've founded on the grounds that they'll protect our human rights, or at least, you know, serve as the first line of defense. And so we began to do things like, you know, frame international treaties and found transnational movements. And there, you know, the meaning of human rights is seemingly opposite. It's about attacking states and sovereignty. It's about not ourselves uh, and self-help, but other help trying to get aid to people who need it abroad. And above all, there was a renunciation of violence and a transformation of the mechanisms of action towards things like, you know, lighting candles and 
very Christian practice, actually, in Amnesty International, letter campaigns, eventually lawsuits. And it's not that the basic idea involved human rights, the idea that everyone has these entitlements in virtue of being human has changed, but the politics of it has shifted radically. Yeah, I think that was one of the most fascinating kind of enlightening aspects of these two works, Christian Human Rights as well as The Last Utopia, is kind of shed light on a concept that we often assume in popular discourse and contemporary discourse, but we've yet to kind of dig deep into not only its history, which you well you do a really good job of through these works, um, but kind of even getting into some of those philosophical underpinnings. One of the things I've noticed in my research is that when we talk about human rights, we often talk about human rights law, obviously, and there's good reason for that. It's interesting how a lot of kind of the philosophical underpinnings are even kind of assumed or they're just not engaged at all. Uh, so much so that you'll have some authors that will talk about how certain rights are in complete disarray. We don't have any idea what we mean at times. There are all these various philosophical theories and underpinnings and ideas, but we kind of all agree on it. It reminds me of the quip that uh, Jacques Maritain said in light of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. He said, we all agree on these rights that these rights exist, just when you ask us why, that's really when the debate ensues because of that kind of philosophical question. So I wanted to ask you, obviously as a historian, as you're looking through this, can you kind of tell us a little bit of some of the basic kind of philosophical ideas that are being used kind of throughout history to undergird this conception of rights? Sure. So the idea of rights that you don't get in virtue of your humanity, but from being a citizen is much older, as far as I can tell. And that just means that in Rome, laws gave certain entitlements to citizens because they were Romans and they had citizenship. And those were legal rights, but they weren't human rights because they weren't grounded on humanity. And we still have all kinds of rights that are of of that kind. Like we might not think each and everything the government does for us is a human right, but There are some rights that we get because the government has said you get this or that, or I have a contract right that I get to exercise. You know, maybe it's not rooted in my humanity, but it's legally protected in various ways. So that's one thing we should just kind of put to the side. If we're interested in human rights, I think the biggies for a very long time were appeals to God and then appeals to nature. So a theological grounding or a natural grounding. And of course, those two could go together. And they, as you know well, could go together in very different ways, depending on whether you're reading Aquinas or, you know, Locke, John Locke, or Thomas Jefferson. So these are are very different syntheses of that theological kind of justification, you know, which itself could have lots of different forms and a, a more kind of naturalistic justification. I mean, in the 20th century, the rationales multiply. For one thing, as you mentioned, some people said we don't need a rationale. Maritain didn't say exactly that disagreement sets in. He says, we agree on these rights on condition no one asks why, which is kind of like a call for theoretical quietism, like not having the debate because it will go nowhere. Um, even if individuals, individual thinkers have very strong views. But, you know, depending on who you ask, there could be lots of other answers that are newer than God and nature. Prominent ones would include agreement, 
like we agreed sometime or some, some hypothetically could agree to have these rights um, that are assigned to all humans. Um, we could kind of try a kind of Immanuel Kant as a kind of guide to thinking about this source of, of rights. And they would be there then rooted in features of our, our nature, but new ones than prior thinkers saw, namely our, our capacity to self-legislate, our autonomy and freedom. So those would be some, you know, the major ways that their thinkers have tried to ground human rights. But what's interesting is that we'll continue having these debates among philosophers and the churn of these movements and laws goes on almost as if the disagreement uh, could end sometime. Yeah, I know within my own kind of theological and ethical tradition, um, obviously I've already kind of talked about how I study and kind of focus on theological anthropology in a lot of my work. And we've kind of already referenced this in terms of you mentioned Genesis 127 is kind of the grounding, the idea that God let us create man in our image after our likeness and then gave a male and female, he created them and gave them work to do in the garden itself. And that's where a lot of times, even with this concept of the Imago Dei or the image of God, even some within the larger, even Protestant kind of Roman Catholic Christian traditions will say, you know, the idea of the Imago Dei really isn't a central doctrine. Um, this is something that's kind of talked to, there's kind of scant attention given to it, especially in the biblical resources. So kind of Genesis 1, you see this maybe come up by Genesis 4, then you get a couple of Psalms here and there, and then you kind of move into the New Testament. So I've had friends say, you know, this idea of the image of God really isn't a central theme. But then you have others, including myself, to say this is actually kind of an undergirding theme. That you see throughout this idea of human distinctiveness, this idea that humans are unique in the rest of creation. And for my own tradition of understanding how that this idea of human dignity and value and worth undergirds the sense of human rights is very central to uh, my kind of theological grounding and philosophical grounding as well. What's interesting to me is that often this idea when we talk about Christian uh, idea of human rights, and obviously you've written a whole book on this talking about kind of a, this idea of it really kind of taking hold really in the 1930s. Um, but even kind of, and I know we may disagree here a little bit, but the idea of the Christian ethic is grounded in this dignity of the individual to me, as well as a love for another. And that idea of having this dignity that also has a corresponding duty to one another is one Christian author and Christian ethicist, Carl F. H. Henry, once wrote, love is the central doctrine of Christian ethics, this idea of love for another, this kind of external love. It's interesting, though, is we've kind of even talked about all these different formulations over the years and over kind of throughout human history of this idea of rights. I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack a little how you trace the idea of kind of a Christian conception of human rights. Even if we disagree on this, I wanted to see if you could kind of play out that argument a little bit, kind of as we lead up to this kind of turning point in 1937 that you write about. So, you know, I, I, I think this is a great topic, but I want to distinguish a few different approaches to it. Mine is historical, like I'm not asking what the truth about us is or what God really meant for us to think. I'm asking what people said and what they said at various points in history, including what they said God said we should think, which we know if we're historians of doctrine changes a lot. It's, to, you know, we should never confuse um, kind of genesis and validity, the fact that something 
became credible or popular to think at a certain point doesn't affect its truth. And, you know, that's your your point that, you know, maybe the fact that Imago Day is pretty peripheral textually for a very long time doesn't have any bearing on whether it's actually foundational and in, in a sense implicitly there the whole time, which is a theological view. Maybe you can make a textual argument for it, but it would be about implicit things in the text, not kind of what the kind of surface evidence says. So, you know, all that's in the background. But I I guess I would say it's clear that Christians, you know, drawing on some ancient sources, were the first to have the idea that there are human rights long before the 1930s or modern times. Uh, Just in if we're interested in that very abstract idea that in virtue of their humanity, people have rights and duties connected to those rights. That's very old. No one could doubt that. Where I think I begin to doubt that we can say very credibly that there are old Christian sources for human rights beyond that comes when we look at the content that philosophers, Christian philosophers, associated with that abstract idea. And there we don't find the kind of familiar litany of human rights ideas that many people support today, things like freedom of speech or freedom from torture or freedom from slavery. And, you know, from what I can tell, Christians supported enormously oppressive politics for, you know, most of the history of Christianity. But you can approach it another way and say, you know, Jesus's goal was not to found the United Nations. It was to announce the coming of the kingdom of God. And it's in part because that's still taking a long time that Christians have been left to their own devices to kind of think politically in various ways. And I just don't see human rights really in any sense being all that central to Christian politics for all of Christian history until the 20th century. When human rights in you know Thomas Jefferson's sense or the French Revolution sense were announced, Christians, as Christians, were mostly hostile, most notably the Roman Catholic Church, which essentially declared war on modernity. In response, now, in, in fairness, the French Revolution like took all the church lands, and you know there was some anger. But I don't think I, I would say you know if we're interested at, in the level of not the abstract idea of human rights, but really just kind of human rights politics, we don't see Christians embracing it for a pretty long time. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of truth to that, and kind of the way it's framed, and also we have to think historically too of the context in which they're writing. I think that's one of the things that I often teach my students is they'll read something like an ancient Christian source and say, "Well, it doesn't seem like they're really focused." And in one of my classes, I teach is religion in the public square, so we kind of go through the history of political thought, starting kind of with the Greeks and kind of pre-Socratics, and then working all the way up to kind of modern day. And one of the things that's always fascinating to me is to say, well, it doesn't seem like they're talking about this. Well, when you often look, especially kind of the early church, there's a specific context in which they're writing. Certain things they may emphasize or not uh, de-emphasize in many ways. And we don't kind of have to unpack that as much. Um, But one of the things that you write in Christian Human Rights that I think was uh, kind of, I wrote in the column, I said, wow, kind of as I'm kind of dialoguing and kind of engaging with it, is you said, no one interested in where human rights came from can afford to ignore Christianity. 
And obviously, we've talked about it. Many of the listeners to this podcast are Christians, and I think would wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, often, I've heard it talked about as one of the greatest gifts that Christianity has given Western civilization is this idea of human rights. But you kind of take a different kind of understanding of that, obviously. Um, you talk about kind of 1937 as kind of a turning point, especially in contemporary human rights uh, discussion, kind of the overlap with Christianity. And you write that Christianity is not actually the source of contemporary human rights, but is rather one of the most successful moral movements in the history of human rights throughout history. I want to see if you could kind of unpack that a little bit. Uh, what do you mean then in the sense that it's not the source per se? I know you've been kind of hinting at this along the way. It's not the source per se. But as you write, it's one of the most successful moral movements in the development of human rights. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? So, uh, I mean, there's a lot to say, but I I guess, you know, in the background, I probably, you know, differ most from the kind of conventional view, because I think that traditions always have an internal pressure to seem continuous to people within them. You know, you've constantly already on this podcast referred to the traditions you're in, and that's great. But from the outside, it seems like traditions are constantly reinventing themselves and creating fictions of their own continuity, whereas we can see them shift radically if we're not invested, you know, just from the start in their being continuous. Jesus and Paul believe different things. You know, the medieval church is not what Jesus or Paul had in mind and so forth and so on. Now, of course, there can be some basic continuity. And I've acknowledged that if we're interested in the level of this very abstract idea that humans have entitlements on the basis of their humanity, there's just no debate. Christians invented that, and it was a really long time ago. I think you know, the Middle Ages, but, you know, we could debate the details. What I've tried to say is that, you know, once we get a little bit more concrete, we see that Christians are very oppressive, especially to people like Jews and Muslims, you know, declare a millennial war on the latter that has not, you know, ended (laughs) uh, lately. And, you know, then we get to modern times when Christians are pretty hostile to modern secular innovations. And importantly, it's precisely those secularists who claim the mantle of human rights. Even if Christians had invented the thing, they're in a sense stolen by the French Revolution, which tries to kind of expel Christians, Christianity, and found its own new religion. And so you can see why there'd be tension. And and no wonder the popes of the Roman Catholic persuasion were so Um, hateful, not just towards the French Revolution, but towards their own birthright, the very idea of human rights. They tried to say, no, we can have duties without rights and so forth. Um, So that's why I attach a lot of attention to the 1930s, because it's then that Protestants, especially kind of early ecumenical Protestants at, at something called the Oxford Conference in 1937, but then Roman Catholics on whom I focus even more because they're their shift is so radical, in 1937, really start to say, no, we made a mistake. Actually, we want to be the ones who stand up for the idea that human rights matter. And it's because they're facing in Europe down the extreme left and extreme right, both of which they see as hostile to Christian values, and both of which they see as secular, secular communism, 
on the left, secular or pagan fascism on the right. And so, you know, the details don't matter that much, but certain pioneering Catholics and Protestants say we need to re-embrace these rights that we'd rejected and reclaim them from secularism. Yeah, that's one of the things is I love studying kind of 20th century history. I'm not a historian. I have to be, I think all the uh, listeners will be very clear on that. I'm definitely not a historian, but I love kind of 20th century thought um, because you do this kind of 1930s to 1950s is such a radical shift throughout all of our societies, not only because of the war, um, but because of other kind of factors that are going on. And one of the things is I was kind of doing some work in theological anthropology. There's a work by John Kilner, Dignity and Destiny, where he talks about how even the concept of the image of God had been kind of adopted even by radical figures like Adolf Hitler and was used to oppress the Jewish people. Um, and the idea that they were marred or broken or damaged uh, in the image, they were made little in the image of God or somehow they were distorted image bearers. Um, and that was used as a justification to wipe them out, uh, which I think many rightfully today see, see that as completely and utterly evil and abhorrent. Um, but you can see how that doctrine even is being used and abused in that particular context. So as we think through kind of the idea of how Christians kind of adopted the idea of human rights and sought to reclaim them from kind of secular kind of forces on the left and the right in your argument, is there anything that you think is kind of unique about Christianity at that time that makes it kind of apt to kind of reclaim these things and kind of repurpose them as you see is, and one of the things you argue is that it's a, one of the most successful kind of moral movements as opposed to a secular theory of human rights, which I think for many listeners and even just many people you meet today, well, no, that's a secular theory of human rights. And you're actually saying, no, there's actually a deep kind of Christian history, even recent history um, that kind of undergirds that movement and propels it forward onto the international stage. Right. So, you know, I just wanted to be faithful to the evidence that I found because I knew as well as anyone that in our day there was this, you know, next turn to the screw. And just as Christians had seen the need to reclaim human rights from the secular in the 1930s and 40s, so the secularists gained a lot of ownership, at least in their minds, over human rights later and, you know, associated their causes liberal progressive causes with human rights like rights to abortion or today gay or trans rights. But in the 1930s and 40s, uh, the left stood for communism or socialism. And, you know, the far right was doing things not just to the Jews, but also to some, you know, believing fervent Christians, including like after the Pope tried to make a deal with Hitler, you know, Hitler reneged and Christians got angry. And so they kind of go their own way. Now, it's really important to note that in the 30s, it's not a lot of Christians because most of them that communism is so bad that it's going to be better to have a fascist alternative. And it's only because America wins the war that most Christians kind of join this early minority that says in the 30s, no, we have to go our own way. But that minority, which became a majority after World War II, says we need to have a kind of religiously grounded concept of human rights. They're the ones, I think, who really connect human dignity and human rights, at least if we're interested in the historical sources. Uh, I talk about the Irish Constitution of 1937, which is the first constitution, which mentions dignity as the source of human rights. 
And many of the post-war documents, not just the Universal Declaration, but also like very conservative Christian documents like the Bavarian Constitution of 1946, make this same move. Dignity is the source of rights. The Pope is saying it and so forth. So what their vision is, it seems to me, is not secular. It's about saying individuals have rights because they're made in the image of God. And that places limits on what the community and state can do to them. And yet it's not an atomistic conception of rights because they're actually very hostile towards kind of unconstrained capitalism. They've lived through the Great Depression. So they say things like, we need to have, you know, welfare or at least, you know, communal uh, philanthropy. And it matters that if people are suffering, not only if they're tortured, but if they're poor. And so they have a kind of communitarian ethic. They're not into personal liberation. They're into safeguarding basic things like free speech, freedom of the body from torture, rights to practice one's religion from the oppressive and especially totalitarian state. And they think that that can only be done if we reconcile human rights with a kind of moral communitarianism of the faithful. And they do that as part of kind of thinking about the future of Christianity. And the evidence is too powerful to deny that there are a lot of people who thought this way. Yeah, that's, we kind of look at kind of the history of human rights and even kind of the human rights discourse within the Christian community It is really interesting to me because I think there are some, even in my tradition, who want to kind of reject modernity still but there are some who say there's actually some good here. It's, just, it's almost like the pendulum, as we think today, has kind of swung the other direction in some sense. It was, okay, we're not focused on the rights of the individual, so we're going to focus on that. And now we're too focused on the rights of the individual. We need to kind of swing it back. And so one of the articles I always say I've said for years that I want to write is the the idea that we're, um, as human beings, we're a people of the pendulum. We typically overcorrect. Um, and keep swinging kind of some younger listeners may not know that old, the idea of like a grandfather clock and the, what a pendulum is, but it swings back and forth and it never really rests in the middle. It's always kind of overcorrecting in many ways. And that's in some ways what keeps the clock going um, in many ways. I know this may be a tad improper to ask a historian, but given your expertise, I wanted to ask you, obviously you've studied kind of the, the grand history, especially contemporary issues are kind of questions of human rights. I wanted to see if you could kind of think forward a little bit, because I think one of the things that happens is we often think uh, that kind of the challenges we're facing right now are the most important and that we're hitting kind of these novel challenges. I mean, this even happens in conversations in some of my areas of research in terms of like artificial intelligence. We're at the fulcrum, we're at the, the watershed moment where everything changes of a society. But given if you look at history, you realize that almost every generation feels that. Um, in some way or another, that they're kind of at the fulcrum of history or something to that effect. As you kind of think forward in terms of human rights discourse and how things are shifting and changing even today, I wanted to see if you could think forward for us and kind of how do we think about this idea of kind of the future of human rights, especially with the notion today, especially with the notion of a right being kind of whatever we desire or these ide idealistic human goods that we all deserve. I wanted to see if you can kind of frame kind of where we might be heading in many ways. Obviously, I don't want to tie your hand to that. Uh, but where do you think we might be heading in terms of kind of human rights discourse? You know, it's, it's, it's very hard to say. Um, 
a you know famous poet said a historian is a prophet looking backward but you know we have to find real prophets to look forward i would say that we're in a very pivotal moment because i think we've had a long bout of a kind of libertarian individualism kind of across the world and a lot of economic success and we're seeing signs of exhaustion from it and and kind of attempts to not reverse it, to, but to find something else. And you see that in politics, where some people are choosing to go more to the, the right than in the past few generations. And some people are choosing to go more to the left. But there are critiques of the kind of two parties in, the, in American politics, or kind of the, the general consensus across the world seems very similar. And it matters because human rights has been pretty central to this kind of centrist consensus of our times. Human rights were thrived as a language of idealism and politics in a kind of world of globalization and the end of history after 1989. And it seems like we're at a moment where we realize that history is going to keep going and that political alternatives are up for grabs still. We don't, you know, we we could imagine very different political outcomes. And I don't know who's going to win, but, you know, we're at a point where Americans are very polarized politically, and that's true in lots of different places. So, you know, if I were a betting man, I'd I'd say you, you should be thinking about not what human rights will become on their own, but rather like what human rights will become depending on like who wins politically and what fundamental direction after this kind of long era of individualism humanity takes. Yeah, I think that's a wise point. I mean, that's one of the things that I try to emphasize to my students that I always tell them, I say, reject simple narratives. Um, Even narratives that you believe in and you think are true is that often history is a lot more complex than the the stories we want to tell ourselves. And that's something that I really appreciated about your work, even though I know even reading through it at times, I'm like, okay, I disagree with him here. I don't, I don't think that's, that's the best way to frame it. Nevertheless, I've benefited extremely from your work. And that's one of the things that we try to do on the podcast is um, engage people that we agree with and even disagree with at times uh, to help us become better thinkers, uh, to dig deep into this. Because as Christians, as a Christian, I do believe that there is an objective reality. There is an objective truth um, and that I have to have humility enough, something I talk to my students pretty regularly about is the idea of epistemic humility, of being aware of our own limitations, our, our finite abilities uh, to grasp things. And so that's one of the things I, I highly commend these works uh, to listeners, The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, as well as Christian Human Rights, um, because you do, you write in a really accessible way. Uh, you're teaching history, not in a, you know, I think for many of us, when we hear the word history, I think some of us, and you may balk when I say this, but most of us growing up, history is kind of boring. You, in many ways, kind of bring it alive and show that these ideas matter and that idea getting into the history really here matters. So um, I just want to thank you for your work. But as we kind of wrap up our conversation, obviously there's so much more depth on all of these topics that we could and should dig into. But outside of your own works, I wanted to kind of end on what are some next steps, next resources or major resources, major works um, on rights that you would encourage folks to check out if they wanted to dig a little bit deeper on some of the ideas we talked about today. 
So uh, thanks for having me. And I'm completely with you on the need for fallibilism, not just humility. Like we can make mistakes and we can learn from them intellectually and kind of take different views. I've learned a lot from reading like alternative um, ways of thinking about human rights um, in the historical realm. You know, I really got my start thinking through a great book by Lynn Hunt called Inventing Human Rights, which provided one story of where human rights came from. And it was mainly because it was so powerful. And I'd still recommend it that I wanted to see if I could, you know, provide a somewhat different view or test it out. And then I would look at some contemporary philosophers of human rights who have, in a sense, returned in a certain way to thinking about, you know, the need for an anthropology to ground human rights. You know, Maritain's answer might be satisfactory on a global scale where there are so many, you know, faith and non-faith traditions, but that doesn't absolve any one of us from thinking about why we believe what we believe. And so some of those authors like John Tassoulis, Jeremy Waldron, and others um, have really borne down in, in very kind of in dialogue with some Christian thought to try to isolate exactly why we are entitled to believe that humans have rights in virtue of their humanity. So I would recommend those three authors. Yeah, I've I've been reading many of those as kind of I'm doing a deep dive right now and been benefited I have benefited greatly from those as well as the works of James Griffin um, and kind of his idea of human rights. And um, that's been really challenging and a very interesting read as well. Uh, well, Sam, I want to just thank you, one, for joining me today here on the podcast, and two, for a really stimulating discussion on, I think, a really important conversation that needs to be had inside the church and outside the church. Um, as we think, hopefully think rightly, pun intended, or to think rightly about the concept of human rights today. So thank you so much for your work, and I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Moyne and learn more about his books on human rights, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as stay up to date in the latest tech news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.